Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on how to take good care of yourself and others. Today, our topic is how brain-working recursive therapy can be used to address anxiety. And my guest is clinical social worker Morag Skorbilis from Cape Town. Welcome, Morag. Thank you. Just to inform our listeners, at the end of the conversation, Morag will give us her three best tips for calming ourselves down. And uh, her tips use a mindfulness approach that is underscored by advances in neuroscience. And of course, as usual, after the three best tips, it will be fun question time. Morag, last month I interviewed clinical psychologist Rafik Lockhart, who is also the director and founder of BWRTSA, and then he introduced us to brain-working recursive therapy. And uh, I hope right. today you will help us see how it can be applied to anxiety. I really hope so. Yeah, but before we get there, I have a question. As a clinical social worker, you've been working with children and adolescents and their parents for a very long time. Please tell us a little about that. Okay, so I started out as a brand new social worker working at the department um, many, many years ago when dinosaurs roamed the world. Um, I was lucky enough amidst all the um, normal things that we do as a field worker to run a short-term group, group work treatment program for youth at risk, um, started by a colleague who very sadly was subsequently a number of years ago actually murdered. And that really was the beginning of my direct work with older children and adolescents. I was very lucky and I loved it. I then um, stopped working there, had my own children and worked for a little while with mothers and toddlers. And I think that was my most incredible learning experience, seeing the relationship develop between mother and child, the bonding, the attachment and, you know, all that kind of thing that develops the base that we grow on and, and build on. Um, I then went to child welfare where I worked and later managed the adoptions unit um, for a number of years, loved the work, really learned about grief and loss while I was working there. Um, and of course, there we work with really tiny little people that have just been born, sometimes older children that are put up for adoption, teenage moms, older moms, and parents who were adopting um, very often because they weren't able to have their old, own children. So more around some form of grief and loss. I then moved on to do my clinical master's at UCT. And the one field I hadn't really specialised in was adolescence. And I did that and then subsequently landed up working at what was William Slater Adolescent Unit, um, now Red Cross Child and Adolescent Unit. Um, and did that for a while and then really just felt that we were getting in too late, too far down the line to really get in and make a valuable difference. And I decided to um, move into working with children at schools. And I was very lucky to find a lovely school just down the road from where I live. Started out working with juniors and senior school. And within a term, there was so much work that they had to get somebody to the junior school. 
um, and we had two people then working. And over the years, I've done a little bit of private practice and then worked a lot with adolescents and their parents. Um, and we've certainly seen over the years working with adolescents and in an educational environment, we have seen the most unprecedented increase in anxiety um, to the extent that children were having things like panic attacks that were so severe that they would pass out and fall flat on the floor on their backs. Um, we couldn't work out what the cause was. We couldn't work out what was triggering them. Others would have panic attacks who'd never had them before, or the panic attacks became so severe that they were wailing in their distress as they were having the panic attack. Um, and this is what led me to um, do the training in BWRT because it works so brilliantly with anxiety and trauma and panic attacks. And, and that was the start of, of me working with BWRT. Yeah. I suppose with a brain working recursive therapy, you, you also need to create a relationship of trust before you start using it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and not only BWRT, I, I really do believe that any form of therapy, you need to take time to um, just get to know and allow the person to get to know you. Um, and, and this is so important when you're working with children and adolescents as well. Um, that one really has to just make sure that the person is at ease. And so while, for example, um, with the 70-year-old lady that I dealt with who'd seen her husband being beaten up by a group of men, um, I met her once. She was so distressed she wanted me to do the session immediately. I did the session of BWRT with her, and I thought, well, that was so awful for her. I'm going to have to see her two or three times. Um, came back on for the second session and said, you know what? I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. So older people sometimes uh, might actually be able to get to know you and feel that they can trust you sometimes because they're so desperate more easily. Um, others, for example, a, a little one that I dealt with, a 12-year-old boy who desperately wanted to go on camp going from um, junior to high school, but had separation anxiety, had never been able to stay on camp, but didn't want to miss out. Um, I took a little bit more time because A, he was ADHD, so the concentration was a bit difficult, and he was quite anxious. So I spent two sessions just getting to know him, finding out what his interests are, um, you know, knowing a little bit more about him. Uh, he was a gaming boy. Mm. And so later when we did the BWRT, I could hook into his interests in gaming. And in fact, we used uh, the character from one of his games, Sonic Hedgehog, that helped him do what was required when, when we did the BWRT session. And I landed up doing four sessions with him, two BWRT and two just adjusting and getting to know each other, knowing um, that he was more comfortable, but also it gave me time to get to know his interests and to start talking his language. Um, and off he went to camp and stayed there very happily. Mom phoned me on the Sunday evening in tears, and I thought, goodness, what has happened? And she was just turning to say he stayed the whole weekend. So I, I think that building up of trust is enormously important. Yes, yes. Uh, today we're going to look at BWRT and anxiety. Can you briefly tell us what anxiety is? Absolutely. I think that 
we forget that anxiety is actually relatively normal and healthy. If we didn't have any form of stress, we'd land up being totally unmotivated couch potatoes. Um, we wouldn't sit down to learn for an exam. We wouldn't gear ourselves up to win a, a sports game or to present at our best in our job. Um, and it's relatively normal and okay if we have the odd bout of stress or anxiety and it turns our stomach up a little bit or it gives us the odd sleepless night. But when the level of stress becomes overwhelming or ongoing over a very long period, um, the fears, the concerns become vivid. In fact, people who experience it would say terrifying. Then it no longer serves a useful purpose. Um, and it becomes so distressing that people just can't function properly, or in some cases can't function at all. In the school setting, if kids are that anxious, they can't focus and listen to what the person is saying because anxiety robs us of the ability to be logical or thoughtful in any way at all. Um, and you will find if you know anybody, for example, who has a fear like being fearful of spiders or snakes, you can take a little plastic or rubber one and show it to them and explain until you are blue in the face mm. that it's not real. That fear response happens so quickly, so instantaneously, that it's happening before you're even consciously aware that it's happening. Um, so anxiety really robs us of enjoyment in life. Um, it makes us totally unable to function. It makes life pretty miserable for a lot of people. Um, and what we need to also remember talking about anxiety is that children and adolescents often display anxiety slightly differently to adults. Not always, but a lot of the time. So you might think they're just being jolly difficult or rude or whatever, but anxiety often comes out in slightly different ways. Um, one sometimes sees the adolescents or older children, they kind of put their one foot on the ball of the foot and you see the, the legs shaking 20 to the dozen. That's a pretty good sign that they're feeling a bit stressed and anxious. Um, some people talk 20 to the dozen, others actually just find they lose their voice almost completely. Um, there are lots of signs and symptoms that one can be aware of, and it will just help one to try and stop it before it's in full flight. Although with anxiety, it's often difficult to do that. Um, and some of those things are that kind of typical butterflies in the tummy. Um, some people start sweating, um, feeling quite nauseous sometimes. So, there, you know, you, people need to know what they are experiencing with anxiety in order to be aware of it and kind of um, see the warning signs coming well before it's in full flight. And I, I think anxiety is also just um, increased in the number of people experiencing it, but people who are already anxious, anxiety has just been tipped over the edge by COVID because we've had all sorts of things thrust upon us um, with everything that goes with COVID and the not knowing, just not knowing how long, what's going to happen, am I going to be safe? That is the kind of thing that raises anxiety for all of us significantly. And we've certainly seen that with the arrival of COVID across the board, both sexes, little ones, teenagers, adults, across the board, it's actually pushed people over the edge.
Yes. Now today you're going to tell us the story of a mum and her daughter. And uh, I'd just like uh-huh. to say that we are not using their real names and that you have their permission to use the case study on this platform. Absolutely. Thank you. So can you tell us about Ella and Madeline? So Ella was 11 when I first got to know her. And she had been taken by her mom to see a a different therapist who worked in a more traditional way. And what had happened was that the person simply was quite firm in wanting to see her on her own without mom present. And some people do work like that, and it can work for for some people, but not always. And in this instance, of course, both mom and child were extremely anxious. So that was just a disaster. Mom then spoke to a family member who knew about BWRT, looked up on the list and saw that I lived in the area that they are in and suggested she come and chat because it looked as though what was happening was as the result of anxiety. So mom then called me and then we scheduled a session with mom and daughter and both of them came in for the first two or three sessions and we really just got to know each other, got to hear what mom was saying about it, got to hear what Ella was saying about it because often two people might have a very different view of the same thing. So that was quite important. And They were absolutely comfortable. By the third session, I did one uh, round of BWRT with Ella. And mom then, at the beginning of the next session, phoned me just before they were due to arrive and said she wondered whether she might just sit right outside the room and not actually have to sit in the room with Ella. And she got to that on her own. Um, I let her sit for that session. Ella didn't mind that at all. The next session, mom said, could she actually go shopping? And Ella just had a bit of a meltdown. Just gently talked it through, encouraged mom, who by that stage was backing off quite quickly because um, she could see Ella was anxious. It raised her anxiety. And we ended up with mom being able to go off to the shops. I said to Ella, keep your phone on you. And if you're anxious, we'll phone mom and tell her to come back. Never phone mom. Mom arrived back and at one point actually came and knocked on the door because we got so involved that we'd forgotten (laughs) that she was, you know, sitting waiting to hear whether we needed her or not. And after that, um, we proceeded with more sessions without mom actually being present. She could actually go off and shop. So it took a little bit of time just to set them both at ease and a little bit of time to allow them to get to understand the process without pushing them needing to be separated. The wonderful thing with BWRT is that when somebody wants to bring a person into the room with them, whether it's a mom and child or whether it's an adult wanting to bring another adult in, BWRT doesn't require us to divulge a lot of you know, deep private information, even if somebody's talking about something on their own and they feel a bit embarrassed. We don't need to know where it's coming from, exactly what all the details are. We don't go into an in-depth archaeological dig in a kind of Freudian way. We actually focus on the results that we want to see. So it doesn't really matter where that comes from. 
Um, and so we could actually work with mom in the room with Ella, or in fact, another adult that maybe was feeling a bit uneasy after a trauma could sit and talk with somebody present in the room with them. Um, and, and I think that is one of the things about BWRT that, that I really appreciate and enjoy. Um, so Ella is a very bright, very verbal, lovely child who is a brilliant little dancer. She does ballet and modern. And in fact, what brought mom into therapy was that um, Ella had a big dance exam coming up in, I think it was about six weeks that we had to work. And what happens as a routine with the two of them is that the day of the exam, Ella just becomes so anxious. Now, you know, mom didn't realize initially that it was anxiety because children very often display it by being just difficult or rude or whatever. And that's the kind of behavior she was seeing. But it was so unpalatable, so dreadful that mom just said, if this happens again, I'm going to stop the dancing. We can't. We actually just can't do this. Um, and so that's what brought the two of them here. Six weeks to, to do the work, kind of three weeks just to settle in and get to know Ella. And I then did two passes of BWRT with her. Working with her on her own, um, she talked a little bit differently than when mom was present in the room. And we just need to be aware of that if there is somebody in the room with the person that sometimes they will not say everything. And that just gave me the opportunity to get to understand how she was experiencing it and be able to adapt the BWRT process to fit with her. Um, and, you know, she was a dancer, so I would, for example, use um, when I was trying to explain how BWRT worked, um, I would say to her, it's a little bit like when you learn a new dance. You do it the first time and you've got to think very hard and you make mistakes and you keep doing it. But when you've done it a few times, you can actually do it without even thinking. Um, so we use what the child can um, understand and work with. We use language that they will understand and concepts that, that fit with their interests and so on. And with her, the, the dancing analogy worked really well. When we try to explain the process of BWRT, uh, one of my favorite things, and in fact, I use it with adults because I enjoy it so much, is that I have a set of little kind of Christmas lights that I pop into a big plastic container. And when you switch them on, they flash. And we use um, things like that, very concrete things to help a child understand, for example, the neurology that we're talking about um, in terms of the brain and BWRT. And they usually quite enjoy the lights. The younger ones will actually want to work them themselves and so on. And Ella was bright, so I think I enjoyed the lights more than she did. But they can identify with it and ask questions. Um, if it was a different child, for example, a boy, we might talk about a train track and let them build a little Lego train as a way of explaining how the neural circuitry works and how fast it goes along the tracks. So we adjust in that kind of a way. While I was working with the two of them, I realized that although Ella got very anxious, um, part of it was around the fact that she has a particular illness, which is hereditary. 
And although she's, she's healthy and well, she's on medication all the time. And certainly the parents and mom had experienced enormous difficulties and um, worry when she was really little while they were sorting it out. And I think some degree of guilt because this is something that they felt they had passed on to her. And I think that complicated things quite a lot. Um, and mom's own kind of anxiety was sparked by it. And I then suggested to mom that perhaps she should have a session because she is part of the picture and contributing to it. She was very, very open and willing. And we did one session with mom and one more session with Ella before the dance exam. And I sat anxiously waiting to hear because I, no matter how many times I use BWRT, it's just amazing to me that it does work so well and so quickly. And they went through the exam and Ella was absolutely fine. Allowed mom to do her hair and her makeup, which is one of the big things that she hated being touched and having to get ready. Did brilliantly in her dance exam. And then mom said to me, well, you know, Ella's doing exams now and you've sorted that out, but could I come and actually see you? And mom then brought her own story um, into the room. And it was a very, it is a very, very sad, heartrending story. Um, she grew up on a farm and as with many um, farm situations, had to go to a little farm school as a child. Sadly, she had a dreadful teacher who obviously just didn't particularly like her and used to beat her over the hands in the cold free state winters. And she began to believe that she is really very limited academically and not very bright, went off after the farm school and had a lag because this woman had not really taught them very much by the sounds of it, but also because Madeline had come to the belief that she was stupid. You know, she was not academically able to do much, which I actually don't believe. And she then finished off her schooling and did a jewellery design course. And while she was doing that, worked with a, a jeweller who really encouraged her and praised her for her work. But in spite of that, she still felt that she was just useless and not very bright. And we did some work around that with her. Also some work around relationships, which BWRT allows us to work with very effectively because her mom is a very strange lady who was not very motherly. Luckily, she had a nanny on the farm who filled that role, as it were. And in fact, the relationship with mom, even today, is still strained and difficult because of how mom is um, and impacts significantly. Dad, of course, was out on the fields as a farmer um, and you know is the, the better of the two parents, I would say. But Madeline also explained that um, dad would go off in the evening or over a weekend and have a drink. And she, at the age of 12 and 13, was going along and having to drive him home because Goodness. he'd had too much to drink. So there's a very complicated story from mom's side. And you can see there quite clearly, actually, where the anxiety already comes from for her. Whereas with Ella, we really don't know why it is that she gets so anxious, why that performance anxiety gets in. And we've worked with that. She's been off on holiday over the of the December period um, and seems to have survived being on the farm and she's due to come back for further work 
um, to work around her self-esteem and her self-image um, so that she can feel a little bit better about herself because this very capable, beautiful woman, all she wants to do is be able to make a kind of a photo book um, for herself and her family. And she's just not able to do it because she feels so incompetent and so um, unable to do anything worthy. And I really do believe that BWRT, that would be a level two work, but I think it will really make a difference for her in terms of her own background and what that's left her with. Can, can you tell us a little bit about level one and level two work? Yes, certainly. Um, level one is the, the kind of thing that we would work in there without going into too much of, of a deep explanation, would be things like anxiety, phobias, fears, um, things like, like that. It works very effectively with. How I got into BWRT was that I have a colleague that I worked with um, who saw me reacting to somebody that they would send through an email and I would just see the name and I would kind of like, oh, no, not again. And this particular person has that effect on a lot of people. And she said, let me do BWRT with you and see how it goes. And my words to her, well, if this works, I sure as heck will go and study it. Well, no doubt I've studied it and it certainly has worked. So reactions like that are quite comfortably worked with. Um, it's the more direct, I don't want to use the word simple, the less complicated things that are not related to our core identity in level one. Level two work is uh, the kind of thing that can be related to our core identity and more in-depth um, slightly more complex things such as eating disorders, OCD, gambling, um, things like our own identity that we work with in level two. There's also a level three, but that is a whole different kind of thing um, and, and very much more complicated. So with Ella, did you work mostly in level one? Level one, um, with children, we don't do level two. Um, even with some older adolescents, we don't do level two because their core identity hasn't really been formed yet. And you're not going to go and fiddle around with core identity um, and try and change things when they haven't actually um, solidified their own identity yet. Um, I guess older adolescents, 17, 18, you certainly could. Um, you know, you'd have to judge on... Um, individual merit, but children and adolescents, we use level one. Yes, and then and then Madeleine's story sounds to me had had more to do with her core identity. So you were working in level two. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think she was already anxious as a result of all her really bad experiences as a child, and then the anxiety on top of that around this beautiful daughter of hers who's got this um, genetic illness. Um, I think any parent understands how how we feel for our children, how guilty we must feel if we think that we've passed that on to them. And I think it was a mixture of those two. That's why the level one work could work with her in terms of the anxiety um, that was directly related to the situation rather than being actually part of her identity. Uh, someone told me that with BWRT, you, you tend to work uh, with one issue at a time. Uh, 
Can can you give an example of that? Yeah. Um, I think my own daughter is probably a good example here, and I say this with her permission. Again, this is one of the things that would be very different with traditional therapy. I would never see a family member. Um, but because you're not having to divulge a whole lot of intimate details, it's quite possible. Um, Natalie, as a little girl, much to my utter shame, even to this day, and I don't want to get rid of the shame ever, she wanted to see what I was doing on the stove, climbed up on a little chair, and I was so busy getting her onto the chair safely that I didn't see her put her hand down on the stove to balance herself on a red hot plate. And she is quite an anxious person by nature. She's, she's wired that way, I think. But this was an absolutely horrendous experience that made her totally unable to work with the stove. She uses a micro. She used a microwave, but never a stove. Um, was never great with briars and fires. And of course, when her little girl was born, she literally couldn't go outside because of the fear of the heat and the fire and and that specific anxiety. Um, she also has a fear around needles, um, and that came into play when she quite recently had a miscarriage and then had to go in for um, a procedure on her back that required needles, and she mm. begged me to to do it with her. I would never work with, for example, that initial anxiety around the heat and the fire in the stove together with another form of it. You do one thing at a time mm. because you're getting the brain to focus on that specifically and change the response to that specific thing. You do that and then you find that sometimes you've done it just with, for example, the fear around the heat and the stove, etc. I specifically did the stove with her. And sometimes we find that it generalizes out to other fears and concerns. Um, the, the brain is probably using the same response from the same pattern that has been laid down. But the brain does that itself. We're not using more than one or two. Um, and you can sometimes do two things in one session. I even am careful to do that because it's quite intense and I think it's quite tiring. Certainly with children, I wouldn't do, and even adolescents, I wouldn't do more than one thing at a time. Um yeah, I hope that explains it. That does. Thank you. Is there anything else you would like to add to uh, Ella and Madeline's story and the topic of anxiety? You know, I think that in terms of anxiety, not so much Ella and, and Madeline, but in terms of anxiety, I think that one of the difficulties around anxiety and similar things like panic attacks and so on is that when we are faced by an incoming message through our senses that there is some kind of threat or danger. The brain responds to that in a very specific way because it's about our survival and our safety. And when that happens, that message goes directly to the part of the brain that BWRT works in, the lizard brain, that, that very um, first part of the brain that developed. And then actually the fight or flight instinct is kicked in there and that that is all happening in that specific part of the brain. Anxiety and panic attacks and so on, when one is feeling that, is because somehow the brain has identified something as a threat. 
sometimes it's not a threat anymore. Sometimes it's just got the wrong end of the stick. It's got it wrong, but it's flipped the switch and you just can't flip it back to calm the person down again. And it's because anxiety is related to that very um, survival mode that we are in. And it goes directly into what I term the the kind of lower brain, um, the bottom story of the brain. Um, and it sees whether it can find a pattern to match it to. We have a pattern recognition matrix in the brain and it happens very, very quickly. And, you know, within a third of a second, in fact, and it then shoots off the response via the fight or flight instinct usually. And it is happening before you actually even realize that it's happening. Um, and this is what happens with anxiety. That is happening so quickly and so instantaneously um, that it's very difficult when somebody's in the throes of a panic attack or very anxious, you can't reason with them. The top story of the brain is the more developed um, part of the brain where the processing happens, um, where we can logically think about things. But if, we, if our brain took time to process something and logically think it out, imagine you had your hand on the stove and your brain took the long route to the higher order brain. Oh You'd be sitting there with your hand on the stove and thinking, hmm, I smell flesh burning. Oh, no. oh maybe I should look. You know, that kind of thing. By that time, you're so badly burnt, it's dangerous. Um, and so in terms of... Um, ensuring our safety, it has to act very, very quickly. And in fact, with neuroscience and the imaging techniques we have, we now know that that message travels about 50 meters down the neural pathway before we become consciously aware of it. And that's pretty quick and, and pretty fast. So if I pick up something and I throw it at somebody sitting across from me, and in fact, I have two little rubber stress balls in the shape of the brain, um, and when I'm explaining BWRT and anxiety to them, I will pick one up without telling them and I'll just lob it across at them. And you'll see that automatically somebody either reaches out their hands very quickly, catches it, usually blinks or they duck away to avoid being hit. And that happens before we even realize that we're doing it. That's how fast the brain works. Mm. And anxiety is working along exactly the same route. Um, and it's in that little gap, that third of a second gap between the incoming information and us becoming consciously aware of what's happening, that BWRT gets in and can work directly. Other forms of um, neuroscience-based therapies also work within the brain, but they work with a different area of the brain um, at a slightly later point in the neural um, pathway and process. So BWRT is quite unique in being able to address anxiety so quickly and so early. And, and that makes a huge difference and enables us to help people so enormously um, with things related to anxiety, because anxiety can really rob us of the ability to enjoy life and, and have a good life. Um, and with COVID, as I've said, Lots of people are now beginning to experience that. And people who are already wired to be a little bit more anxious are just being tipped over the edge. And and it's become um, quite widespread across all ages, both sexes. And it just is something that really needs, people really need help with because it is just so able to rob us um, of the ability to enjoy life. 
Thank you, Marek. And uh, do you work online? I do, absolutely. Um, while I was still working at schools, um, of course, they weren't at school. And the number of kids that were experiencing particularly anxiety were just soaring. They were increasing daily. Um, and initially, people were a little bit kind of wary of it. Um, one or two kids really didn't want their faces to be seen. And so, in fact, I've even used WhatsApp because they can then take their phone and go down to the bottom end of the garden where they feel that nobody can hear them. For adolescents, that's quite important. Um, generally, people are managing online a lot better now. And one adjusts and adapts quite quickly. Can you give us the name of your website? The, the name is, is my name. Morag Scordulis, M-O-R-A-G-S-C-O-R-D-I-L-I-S dot C-O dot Z-A. Thank you. And now for your three best tips on calming ourselves (laughs) down. I thought that with the way that we are struggling with um, corona and COVID and the anxiety that that is making us have to cope with, I would use some mindfulness type techniques, but they are at the same time also related very much to the part of the brain that we've been talking about. Our breathing, our respiration, there is actually a phrenic nerve that goes directly from the lungs up to the brain. And so that goes both ways, from one to the other. And while breathing is under the control of the the lizard brain, the kind of lower brain, Um, we don't have to walk around thinking about how to breathe. It is also under our conscious control. And so we can use it to send a message to the brain, Um, either to ramp us up if we want to really perform and, and we're wanting to kind of, you know, get the brain going, be a little bit more wound up. And if you think about a boxer in the ring waiting to get going, you'll see them ramping themselves up with their short, fast breaths and their hands going. But we can use it in the opposite direction by breathing in a particular way that sends the message to the brain, there's no tiger chasing me, it's safe and calm. And the wonderful thing about using our our breath is that it is absolutely free, there's no cost, and it is always freely available, which is wonderful. Now, what happens is when we're a bit wound up, if we're anxious and kind of stressed about something, people will often say, just take a deep breath, you'll be fine. That's actually not quite correct. We need to breathe in and then hold it for a second and then slowly in a controlled way, breathe out for slightly longer than we breathe in. So if you breathe in for three counts, hold it and then breathe out for five or six counts. When we're focusing on the exhaling, this actually serves to calm us down and and help the brain get the message that everything's good, you don't need to be stressing. Another one that works with breathing is if we do a double inhale and then a long inhale. Now, if you think about somebody who is crying and sobbing, that's where you hear it. It's that (laughs) kind of thing. So two breaths in without a break in between and a long breath out. 
sends the same message. It opens up all the little air sacs, the alveoli at the bottom of the lungs, and makes sure that we not only get oxygen into the lungs, but that we get rid of the carbon dioxide. And that's a really useful one. The second thing that is really useful, and I do this a lot with adolescents and even younger children who get quite anxious in class or with tests or whatever. In fact, I use it when I go to the dentist, when I had to have um, root canal quite recently, I used it. So we use our five senses, our sense of sight, smell, hearing, touch and taste. Um, and what we do is that we focus on three things that we can see, three things we can hear, smell, taste, etc. If you think about walking uh, somewhere and being anxious, I often would say to kids at school, if they were going off to a test, keep something in your pocket, like some salty nuts or biltong or a couple of little sour sweets, pop them in your mouth and eat those and just really focus completely on the taste of that. It's partly about distracting ourselves from what's making us anxious. If, if we focus on each of those things, then we're not, our brain is not kind of going wild with the anxiety. The other part of it is that our eyes are not just linked to the brain. Our eyes are part of the brain. The eyes are um, pushed out of the skull during in utero development so that we can actually use them to keep ourselves safe. And so vision is a very powerful um, thing. And we can use that to, to calm ourselves down if we use our senses in this kind of a way. It's very useful. I have an adolescent that I worked with um, now in grade 11 who used to go off with her family to Thailand um, every every year. And she was becoming very anxious at school when they went back after COVID. And one of the things for her that was very powerful was the smell that she associated with Thailand. And she then got hold of something, I think it was a citrusy smell, and she soaked a cotton ball in that, put it in a tiny little plastic pill container that she kept in her pocket. And as soon as she started feeling slightly agitated and realized she was getting anxious, she'd open the little lid and just take a whiff, smell this in, and she said it immediately calmed her down. So those things are quite inexpensive and very freely available to all of us to use. And then thirdly, People might think this is a little bit crazy when they hear this, but I'll explain it. Get something to eat and chew. Because when we are chewing, the message goes to our brain because we're salivating that we're in what is called the rest and digest mode. And that is exactly the opposite of the fight or flight instinct that kicks in when there's danger and we're very anxious. So if you keep something, again, if you have those things in your pocket to concentrate on the taste of, have something that you can chew. And as you chew, you start salivating and the message goes to the brain, there's no tiger chasing you. It's absolutely fine. Calm down. Because you wouldn't be, if you were in the jungle as one of the ancestors, you wouldn't be digesting a huge meal if you were having to run for your life to not to turn into the tiger's lunch. And so that works really well. And I hope that people will find those useful and easy to access. Yes, they are very practical. I'm certainly going to try out some <laughs> of them. Thank you, Morag. And now, are you ready for your fun question? 
I am as ready as I'll ever be. I think you'll find it a very easy one. Now, I know that you are into quilting. Mm. So I was wondering if you were to include an image of yourself in one of your quilts, uh, like a self-portrait, what would that look like? Oh, I'm into quite modern quilts, so that, that would be very interesting. Um, I would probably do a kind of a woodland, quite um, shady um, woodland, and have a little hedgehog in there somewhere. Ah, you like the hedgehogs? Uh, yes, yeah, the hedgehog is both, it's not, um, it's harmless, it's not going to pose any danger, not a porcupine, those are different, a yes. little hedgehog. Um, they're quite sensitive and soft underneath all those quills, and those little quills are sticking out to protect themselves, but they're not going to do serious damage to anybody else. So, in fact, I might actually give that a go now that you yeah. suggested it. They're very cute, aren't they? <laughs> Can I ask you one? Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> we use quite a lot of these these kinds of things in therapy, or I do, um, kind of projective techniques um, as well as drawing and so on. And there are two favorites that I have. The one I use, the magic wand, and I say, if you had a magic wand, what would you do with it? But for you, if you were to land up on a desert island and you could take two people and two things with you for the duration of your stay, who and what would you choose to keep with you? Two people and two things. Two people and two things. Oh, you're putting me in a very difficult position. <laughs> <laughs> I'd certainly take my life partner, but now I have two children. <laughs> so I have a problem. I think I'll have to wish to have one child there, and when they get fed up with me, they can go back and I can get the other one. <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> and two things. Yep. I was going to say definitely a book I can read and reread. And now I'm thinking, what on earth will I eat while I'm there? <laughs> can it be an abstract thing? Absolutely. Anything. You know what? I, I would like to take along the ability to enjoy and, be, and see what is there and be grateful for what is there. How wonderful, how absolutely wonderful. That that also is really interesting in terms of the fact that neuroscience has shown us that gratitude is the one thing that really impacts on our state of being, of feeling more calm, of feeling less stressed. And, and that's borne out by science. Yeah, good, good. So it falls into the scientific category. Very clever answer. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time, Morag. Thank you. To our listeners, you'll find a podcast on BWRT on this series each month. And there's also an Afrikaans article on my website uh, that gives you an introduction to BWRT. Uh, you can go to the website. It's called mariettsneiman.co.za. And you can type BWRT into the search bar and see what comes up. Thank you for listening today. And if you find this helpful, please share it with someone you care about. It would be greatly appreciated if you would rate and review the podcast series where you download your podcasts. 
Calm, Clear and Helpful is available on iTunes, Spotify, Iono FM and Player FM. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.